Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, as we get going this morning, uh, I have a question for you to consider, and that's this. How weak are you? How weak are you? I, I would say it's a question we should all consider because weakness is a part of Christianity. It's a part of Christianity that makes it very unique from other religions. And other religions of the world and other ideologies of the world, you need to run from weakness. You need to do whatever you can to suppress it, to get away from it, to make yourself better, you know, etc., etc. But in Christianity, you can be weak. And that makes, that makes Jesus, and that makes who we are as a people and who we are, are as a church very unique. When Andy started this morning his prayer after the confession of sin, he says, I don't have it all together that's something that is so unique to Christianity because we have a God who loves us in our weakness. He doesn't just say it. He doesn't just promote some kind of ideology. You can be weak. He actually becomes weak. He actually walks this earth. He actually takes on human flesh. He actually becomes the sufferer. And it's through his suffering that he invites weak people broken and alienated from the Lord into his fellowship. And that fellowship of weakness is a cross-cultural, multicultural fellowship. There's not a single, single culture or person on this earth that does not qualify for weakness. Everyone, whether you're Chinese or black or white or Latino or whatever nation you're from, 
you need the grace of the gospel. I remember early on in Trinity Park, uh, we started out and we were mostly, honestly, a white core group that planted this church. We had a desire that we would become multicultural. And one of the first families... Yeah. (laughs) One of the first families that came to our church that was not white and became a member, I I eventually got to know them and I asked them, like, why did you end up coming to Trinity Park? And I thought that they might say something about the fact that we desire to be a multicultural church. But they didn't at all. They They didn't care at all about that focus. What they cared about is one day I made an offhanded comment as the children left the service and went to children's church, as we used to do. Um, I said, my hope for our children at this church is that the grace of the gospel would hit them in the heart and they would know the love of Jesus. And he as the husband turned to his wife, said, I think this is the church for us. We need a church where we can thrive in grace. Now, that has nothing to do with the fact that they're a Chinese family, does it? No, not at all. It means that they're human beings who need the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for a multicultural church because everyone needs grace. Everyone needs the cross. Everyone needs to be accepted even though they're weak. At our last visitor's lunch, which Andy just promoted to you, someone asked the question, they're like, I'm considering coming to this church, but I have a question for you. And I'm sorry I have to ask it, but it's really important to me. And she said, Listen, I'm a really broken person. I have a really hard story. And I need to know that if I share, if I really open up in this church about who I am and what I've been through, I need to know that I will be embraced, that I will not be rejected. And she asked me, can you, can you assure me that in my weakness, I will be received here at this church? It was an unbelievable question, and actually in the, in the group, I just kind of stepped back, and I let people who were there from the church answer from their own experience, and afterwards, she apologized again for asking such a hard question, and I told her, that was the best question anybody's ever asked at our church <laughs> in a visitor's lunch. That is the question. Not just is the gospel true theoretically, But is it real? Is it really lived out here for me in this church? I I called this sermon, Jesus Died for a Multicultural Church. And in that title, there's a bit of danger. The danger is that in our society today, as I worked on my sermon this week, sometimes I work and work out at the Y. And at the Y right now, there is an initiative for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, you could be at Starbucks, you could be at your company, you could be anywhere on any company's website on opendoor.com, you could be reading something off a website for the U.S. government, either political party, everybody is emphasizing diversity, equity, and inclusion right now. And you know what? In a lot of ways, in the common grace of that for our country and what we've been through as a country, I believe that's a good thing. There are some ways that goes in the wrong direction. But it's good. It's a common grace thing that we should emphasize equity, diversity, and inclusion. In general, it's a good thing. But I want to be very clear. At Trinity Park Church and the Church of Jesus Christ, we do not emphasize inclusion and diversity because 
the Y does it, or Starbucks does it, or Apple does it, or the Democratic, the Republican Party does it. We don't do that to be politically correct. Some people respond to political correctness and they think, that's awesome. That's cool. We need to be better people. Okay, other people are like, you know what? Since I was in elementary school, this has been shoved down my throat. Every week at work, this is shoved down my throat. And there's this adverse reaction as soon as we start talking about multiculturalism. And I want to acknowledge that. It's a real danger for us. Because in the church and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is what we talk about in culture. That's a common grace way. That's a generally good and decent way to approach a big problem. In the church, we are not approaching that problem with the same perspective. We are approaching this problem of of lack of inclusion, of alienation of certain people groups from the standpoint of special grace, from the standpoint of the cross of Jesus Christ, from the standpoint of the very dead center of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. In the first part of Ephesians 2, 2, 1 through 10, Jesus dies for you, and we talk about the application of grace to the individual in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we talk about the application of grace to the body of Christ, to the multicultural body of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for a multicultural church. He died for a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What, when we talk about multiculturalism in the church, it flows downstream from the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't flow downstream from political correctness. It flows downstream from Jesus. And so when we talk about it, we need to get ourselves into a different category. We need to find ourselves where Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 put us at the center of our gospel, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to see first, we were all once alienated. And then we're going to see what Jesus did, he reconciled us to God and to each other at the cross. And then we're going to see what we've become. We've become united together to the glory of God. All of this to show us what Christ did to purchase a multicultural church for himself. Alienated. The first point is alienated who we once were. This is in verses 11 and 12. And it goes into the Jew and Gentile divide. The Jew and Gentile divide at that time was very serious. In our country, the history we have of slavery and the division, the hostility that has existed between blacks and whites, also not just blacks and whites, but also Asians and whites in America, it's a real division that has occurred in our society. And just as real and as profound as that division has been for us, the Jewish-Gentile division was as bad and possibly even worse. Listen to the words of William Barclay. The Jew had immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was not even lawful to help a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral for that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. 
wow. I mean, we're talking about real cultural hostility and even hatred. The temple of Herod itself, which was the version of the temple in Jerusalem at the time, just reinforced this exclusion of the Gentiles from an architectural perspective. The inner courts, you had the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, and just outside of that, you had the courts for the Jews, and you had the courts for the priests, then you had the courts for men, and then you had the courts for women. If you were a Gentile, where did you go? Well, you had to be down the stairs, five stairs from the first floor, then you went through a wall, then you went down 14 more stairs through another gigantic barrier wall to where there was a very open court where you could look up as a Gentile and see architecturally inculcated in your experience that you were alienated, in fact. You did not belong with the people of God. Historian Josephus writes this for us about the inscription on that dividing wall, that literal dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Archaeologists in 1871 and 1935 have found two of these original notices. The one found in 1871 says, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about total alienation. We're talking about ingrained culturally in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people and in the hearts and minds of the Gentiles. We are not together. We are alienated from one another. There is a real barrier that exists between us. There are four ways that Paul says here that Gentiles were alienated, that really we all were alienated from Christ. First of all, sorry, alien. First of all, we're alienated from Christ. This is speaking of Gentiles specifically, but it applies to everyone. Romans 3:23 says, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And so no matter what your background is, we are all alienated from Christ. Second of all, it says we're alienated from the church community. At this time in history, the Jewish nation is the representation of the church of God in the world. They were doing a really poor job of being that representation of God in the world, but they were the community of God in the world at the time. And Gentiles, literally all non-Jews, had no access. They were totally alienated, and it was threatened to them that they would be killed if they tried to enter. They were also, it says, alienated from the promises. God made promises to the Gentiles throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 12, the the very beginning of the Jewish nation, the father Abraham, God promises you will be the father of many nations. And then it goes on later in Leviticus when they have refugees coming into the community of God, they are commanded to receive refugees among them to provide for them. And then there are prophecies in Isaiah and elsewhere, so many prophecies to include the Gentiles But so far in the history of the people of God, Gentiles had not been included. The Jews had done everything that they can to keep the Gentiles out. And they're also, fourthly, alienated from hope. So they're alienated from Christ, alienated from the church community, from the promises, and from hope. Because they were excluded from Christ, excluded from the promises, They have no hope of God in the world. All right, another train. All right, 
Maybe it'll be a three-train Sunday. We'll see what happens later. Uh, so this is important. I don't know how many of you in this room, whatever, this, this room, uh, have, have Jewish heritage. Maybe some of you do. But I would venture to guess that 98, 99% of you don't. Okay? So when he's talking about Gentiles, it's easy for us to think of ourselves as being the insiders. Okay? All of us, if Christ had not come, as he's speaking these promises to Gentiles and what he's going to do to include us into the community of faith, every single one of us at this time were excluded from the family of God. Actually, Jews included. If you weren't looking to God for mercy and looking to him, looking forward to Christ, all of us were excluded from the promises. All of us are excluded from hope. Every single one of us needed Christ to come. You know, this is really interesting. There are points at which Paul commands us to forget what is behind and to strain forward toward what is ahead. Philippians 3 comes to mind. But here Paul instructs us to never forget something. We are to never forget that we were alienated. We were all alienated from God. In our weakness, in our sin, in our struggle, there was a time before Christ came that we did not have grace offered to us. There was a time when we were not a part of God's people. When standing on our own, we were excluded from the promises. So that was the first point. We were alienated. The second point is that we are now reconciled according to what Christ has done in verses 13 through 18. So first of all, God takes the action. In the first section, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, in verse 4, there's this but, but God sentence where everything hinges on the character and action of God. And now in verses 11 through 22, there is a but now sentence in verse 13 where before we were alienated and now but now God has reconciled us. All of this flows through the action and the character of of God. What did Christ do? Well, what, what is explained to us here is that we are brought from far to near. This is the language of spatial closeness. We were once far off, and now God has brought us near in Christ Jesus. Literally, if you go back to the temple illustration, we were all out there in the court of the Gentiles, and what God has done is God has taken us and he has brought us through Christ all the way in, not into just the court of Israel, the court of the priests or the men or the women. He's brought us all the way in to the Holy of Holies. And Christ has shed his blood. The Ark of the Covenant is there. His mercy is given to us, everyone, all the Gentiles. This would have been unfathomable for a Jew to consider, that a Gentile would be brought not just into the courts for Israel, but brought into the Holy of Holies, and they would be ransomed and redeemed just like Israel needs to be so that now they can experience full participation in the community of faith. You know, shame is a powerful, is a powerful emotion. Shame is the feeling that if I were really honest about who I am, if, if everybody really knew how bad I was, how weak I really was, then I would not be embraced. Then I would not I would not be, um, I, I would, it would not be acknowledged that I'm forgiven. I would not be a part of this community. I would not be included as I so desperately want to be. And what Christ has done for us is that he has 
Once we were far off and alienated, he has brought us near. I want you to think about the father on the road. The father on the road and the prodigal son. The father, what does he do? He doesn't wait for the son to return. He doesn't wait for him to get all the way back and go through his pre-rehearsed description of how bad he was. He doesn't make his son grovel in the dirt. He actually runs out and meets his son before the son can say a word. And what does he do? He throws his arms around the son. God, right here in Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about how God throws his arms around us and breaks the power of shame. So that, so that we know no matter what nation you're from, what your cultural background is, whatever you've done, God the Father throws his arms around you. And when he throws his arms around you, he simultaneously, this is not just an individual hug, okay? This is a big group hug, okay? This is a group hug where as God brings you close to him, he's also bringing you close to other people. He's bringing you close to other people in a blood-bought, redeemed multicultural community. How theologically, though, does Jesus throw his arms around us? How does he accomplish the spatial closeness? Well, there's two ways described for us in verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's two ways that God describes this incredible embrace of Jesus. The first one is, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. People get uncomfortable sometimes with blood talk. People don't like to talk about blood. Uh, Sometimes evangelicals are criticized for talking about the blood of Jesus too much. It's too gruesome that we would talk about this, but really it is so foundational to Christianity because what we believe is that our sin is what separated us from God. Our sin is what caused us to be alienated from God. And that alienation that we experience from God because of sin also alienated us from one another. The real problem, the cause of the alienation or the lack of inclusion that you so desperately want to have is sin. There's sin in our lives of all various kinds. And what Christ does is this. Either you can pay for your sin you can, you can be the one who, who pays for your sin ultimately, or you can look to Christ to be the one who pays for your sin. And if you look to Christ to be the one who pays for your sin by shedding his blood, what he does is he washes away your sin. He washes away the reason why we would be separated from God or separated from each other. So Christ's blood for each and every one of us, for all of us, all of us have the same problem. It can only be answered in one way or another, either by you paying for your sin, or there can be a substitution. Everyone, whether you're black or white or Asian or Latino or a man or a woman, or whatever party you vote for, it doesn't matter. Every one of us has the same problem, and every one of us needs the same solution, and it's the blood of Christ. And so Jesus says, this is how I've thrown my arms around you. I have shed my blood for you. That's the first way. The second way Jesus gives us this massive group hug, this embrace, is he brings us near by including us, it says in verse 13 at the beginning, in him. In him. This is talking about union with Christ. What I want you to understand is this, that when Jesus died, he literally died for a multicultural people. 
We find in places like Romans 6 that we died with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and we're raised with Christ. And when you died with Christ, were raised with Christ, so was every other believer from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So literally, if you are in Christ, you are not in Christ by yourself. You're in Christ in a multicultural church that died, was buried, and was raised with Christ. You literally are in Christ with a multicultural community that has been purchased, Jew, Gentile, every tongue, tribe, and nation. We, say, we need the same shame-breaking in grace, shame-breaking embrace that gives us grace, uh, every single one of us. So what Christ accomplished is this. It says this, He himself is our peace. We were experiencing a double alienation, an alienation from God and an alienation from one another, and Christ himself becomes our peace. For those of you who take upon yourselves the burden of bringing peace in relationships, being peacemakers, first of all, I want to say thank you, because that is a really important calling in the church. But I also want to take the pressure off of you, because you cannot bring ultimate peace. Maybe some of you feel this burden with your family of origin or other relationships in the church, other relationships in your community. I think it's wonderful that you want to intervene and be a peacemaker, but you need to be looking to the ultimate peacemaker, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can actually bring peace into our world, and he does this by becoming our peace. Jesus actually on the cross absorbs all of the hostility, all the hostility that existed between us and him, all the hostility that exists between us and other people, He actually takes it all in himself. He absorbs the hell of all that hostility, and he puts it to death. He actually, in his crucifixion, puts to death that hostility. He becomes our peace. He's the real and final answer for cultural, racial, and ethnic peace. And this is really important. I want you to tune in. Jesus answers the problem of alienation very differently than Karl Marx does. Listen up. Karl Marx, he also noticed that there's this problem of alienation experienced among some groups of people in society. And the way Marx said to deal with that was to stand up to the man, to tear down the empowered, to demand your rights, to stir up class divisions. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus instead becomes the man. He doesn't tear down the empowered. He lowers himself in humility and weakness. He puts to death the hostility. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't just give up his rights, but he gives up his life. Jesus addresses the problem of alienation in a totally different way than Karl Marx tells us that we need to address it. We as Christians, if we're following Marx, are going to, well, actually, as Christians, you really don't want to follow Marx, but if you are a Christian and you buy into that ideology, you're going to go astray. But if you buy into the gospel of Jesus Christ and you see this problem of alienation, the way you respond to it is by first believing in Jesus and then by following Jesus. And how do you follow Jesus? You follow Jesus by surrendering your rights 
by giving up your life, by becoming a sacrifice for other people. Everybody in the church needs to be disadvantaging themselves to advantage others. And this only works if we all are doing it, all right? If some people in church are like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to hold on to all my position, my power, and everything. But you can do that. Well, that doesn't work. Everybody in the church has to be willing to follow Jesus Christ, to give up ourselves so that other people can belong and be included. It says here that in Christ, we are made one new man in verse 15 in place of the two, so making peace. So the idea here, imagine, imagine making a statue of a man. And in order to make that statue, you have the Jews and the Gentiles. Let's say the Jews are made out of silver and the Gentiles are made out of bronze. And the way that, that we might want to do that is you just try to, to fuse those two metals together. Well, I can tell you that's going to be a really ugly statue. and It's not going to work. It's going to break apart. In order for one new man to be made out of the two, Jew and Gentile, what has to happen is the Jew, the silver has to be melted down. The Gentile, the bronze, has to be melted down. Everybody has to be melted before the grace of the gospel. And then everybody has to be brought together to be made one new man out of the two. Which means that in the church, in order for us to be one, you have to be willing to let go of uh, your, your, culture, your sense of cultural superiority. And everyone does it. Okay, I, I'm not just speaking to white people when I say that. I want to be very clear. I am. But I'm speaking to everyone. Everybody has a sense of being culturally superior because that's the way you grew up. And, and let me say this too. There are aspects of our native cultures that are good, that are really good, that we should hold on to. And in fact, we should celebrate those things. But there are also aspects of our cultures that we grew up with that need to be let go of, that are not good. And that goes for every culture. And in the church, the culture that we now are, we're not, uh, we're not a black culture or a white culture. We're not a blue culture or a red culture. We're a Jesus culture. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to, we're blood-bought. We're redeemed. Every single one of us. And what that means is that Jesus has to be preeminent for us. And so if there's any part of your culture that you want to hold on to and say, this for me actually matters a little bit more than Jesus, and what's really dangerous is none of us would ever say that, okay? But if you find yourself dividing yourself from other people for cultural reasons in the church, then there's something that you need to let go of there. You can still value it, but you can't value it as much as you value Jesus Christ. Everybody has to be melted down to be brought into this new man that Christ is building. So we're reconciled. We're reconciled people, reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And what we're doing now is that Jesus, it says, he has become our peace. This is theologically real. This is actually spiritually real. We are one new man. And what we're doing now is we are simply seeking to live out what Christ has already done, what he's already accomplished. God has already done this for us in Christ, and we're seeking to live in line with what Christ has done. So now let's talk about how we're united in what we have become in verses 19 through 21. We're united in one new corporate identity, and there's three analogies given here to describe this new unity that we have. We're called citizens of a new kingdom, first of all. Citizens 
of a new kingdom. Fellow citizens in verse 19, no longer strangers and aliens. If you've ever traveled internationally, particularly to a country that may be a little bit hostile uh, to Westerners or to Americans, you need to keep your passport on you at all times. Uh, just to prove who you are. Uh, it's important to be able to prove your identity. Well, in the church, you no longer need to carry your citizenship papers. You no longer need to carry your passport around to prove who you are, to prove that you really belong. Because in Christ, we've all been given the same seal of the promised Holy Spirit, and we all are included. There are no second-class citizens in the church. Everybody's a first-class citizen. There's no more court of the Gentiles, court of the Jews. Everybody gets in. Everybody's in because they believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And if we're citizens of a new kingdom, not only are we all first-class citizens, we're also all dual citizens. Sometimes you'll meet people and you're like, what country are you from? And they're like, well, actually, I have dual citizenship. You know, Singapore and the United States. That's really cool. I wish, I wish I could do that sometimes. But in, actually, all Christians are dual citizens. You are both. Maybe you're, if you're an American, you are an American citizen, and you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Maybe you are a Chinese citizen, and you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. German citizen and citizen of the kingdom of God. And what's important for us, though, is that our citizenship now in the kingdom of God now reinterprets what it means to be a citizen of America. Even though you have a dual citizenship, it is not equal citizenship. You have one citizenship because there's a king of the kingdom of God who is preeminent over whoever the president of the United States is, etc. And so that citizenship in the kingdom of God now reinterprets how we are to live as citizens of the United States. So we are citizens of a new kingdom. We're also members of a new family. It says there also in verse 19, members of the household of God. And if the first metaphor was talking about our identity, this is talking about intimacy. The, the intimacy of being in a family is very different than being a citizen of a kingdom. You are part of God's family. If you go around and you meet somebody from the global church, it's very common that they would be referring to one another as brother and sister. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. Maybe even other ethnic churches might do this more than, than we do in a, a more white church, to be honest with you. And we don't call each other brother Brian and sister Susan. I mean, they don't do that that often, but actually that's a really great description of who you are. That's a good way to describe. That's actually the best way to describe who you are in the church. You're part of a new family. And what this does is this really crosses through our, Amer our rugged Western individualism. Our individualism, though Jesus died for you, he also died for the church. And he died so that you would not uh, forever go to church on the internet by yourself, not so that you would never join a community group, and so you would, you're, you would be deathly afraid of, of ever connecting. He wants you, and you need to experience community in the church. This is a time when a lot of people are coming out of COVID, and they're like, how do I even do this thing again? And I totally respect the, the struggles of when to come back to church and when do I get in, involved in the community and the social anxiety that's going on there. But something that we have to really value is that we were created for skin-on community. We need each other in the flesh. We need to have embodied community in the church. We're a family, and we need to see one another face-to-face. -face. Third, the third analogy and final one is that we're stones of a new temple, stones of a new 
temple. And this goes back to the imagery I've been talking about all along, Herod's temple. Just as vivid as that alienating wall has been broken down and that dividing wall of hostility has been utterly decimated through Christ, now what is Christ doing with all of these blood-bought, redeemed people, this Jesus culture, what's he doing? He is building a new temple with us. And this is, for a Jew reading this, this would have been, this would have been just blazing off the page metaphorically because in the Old Testament, when the temple was last spoken of, one of the times it was last spoken of was at the end of Ezekiel. And at the end of Ezekiel, because of the generational disobedience of God's people, the Spirit leaves the temple in emphatic fashion. God is saying, I no longer can be here among my people. And Herod's temple, the temple I was just telling you about, it was just nice on the outside, in fact, beautiful on the outside, but void of God on the inside. And what God is doing here is he's saying, yes, I am rebuilding my temple, but I'm not going to build it like I did in the Old Testament. I'm going to build a New Testament temple, the New Testament people of God. They are my new temple, and the, the foundation of that temple is the apostles and the prophets, They're the ones who gave the word of God to us. The cornerstone of that temple is Jesus Christ. He's the one on whom the structure rises and falls. But every one of you, no matter what your background is, no matter what your your racial background, cultural background, every one of you has been made into a living stone. As Peter tells us about in 1 Peter 2, we are living stones. What that means is that you matter a great deal. That if you are not present in the church, if you are taken out of the church, it's like leaving a hole in the edifice of the building. Imagine if you went home today, and let's say maybe you live in a brick home, and 20 pieces of brick had been removed from the edifice of your home. If you live in a vinyl home like I do, a bunch of the vinyl had been ripped off. You'd be like, man, this is not a good structure, right? i got to get something done here. Same thing. We are all vital parts of this structural the structure. First Corinthians 6 says that we are, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is true. Individually, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But the image here is that we are a collective temple built by God for his glory. The idea is this, that when people see the church, that they would so see a manifestation of the glory of God that it would cause them to worship God, in particular as they see the church, as we are able to, in a way that culture so desperately wants to see happen with with equity and inclusion and diversity, that they would actually see what's happening in the church and go, my goodness, the gospel is true. The gospel actually provides the answer for multiculturalism that our culture is looking for. And I believe that it does. I believe that there is some common grace good that happens through the other means out there, and there's also some things that are bad. But in the church, I believe God is doing something and has done something in Jesus Christ that will transcend and transform so the world should be able to look at us and see Jesus. But I think we need to be honest here for a second. (laughs) I mean, certainly historically in our country, this has just not been the case, and we need to own that. And still currently... In our country, this is often not the case. Often the church is not a place where we see unity across ethnic lines. And that's something we need to really grapple with and repent of when that's the case. 
We need to own up to that and not just turn a blind eye to it because honestly, the theology that's revealed here, it's, it's not extraneous. This is not kind of out there in some pocket of the Bible that's hard to understand, like, you know, being baptized for dead people or some of these other things that, you know, seminary professors are just like, I don't really know. You can find that in certain places. It's like, I'm not sure, like, what exactly in that one-off little statement we're going to do with that. That's not what this is. This is in the dead center of our faith. This is Jesus on the cross. People love Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and then 11 through 22, they're like, oh, man, a multicultural church, what do I do with that? It's the same chapter. It's the center of our faith. We cannot turn a blind eye to what Jesus has done in bringing unity and equality to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. So what needs to change? You know, you've heard the quote, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So what needs to change? Well, there does need to be unity and equality for everyone in the church. It says in verse 18, we all have the same access to God through the Son by the Spirit. That means if you are a white man or woman, then Jesus died to give you the gospel. If you are an Asian man or woman, Jesus died to give you the gospel. If you are a black man or woman, Jesus died to give you the gospel. Latino, et cetera, et cetera, Pacific Islander, all the way down. Every single, if you're a Jew, Jesus died to give you the gospel. Every single one of us got in in the same way. We were all weak, and now we have not been alienated, but we've been brought in through the blood of Christ, and there should be unity and equality. The second thing that needs to change is that there should be no more segregation along ethnic lines in the church. Now, there are language barriers that do exist at times between certain nations. I mean, we have not experienced the reversal, the full reversal of Babel yet. Uh, Pentecost got us started, and in heaven we'll see it all redeemed. But we're still in the already not yet. And there are still times when you need to worship with your ethnic people based on language. There, there's still times when cultures need to get together and worship the Lord together. But we need to say no to segregation in the church along ethnic lines. As Dr. King said, the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And I believe that is still the case. And that needs to change. We should be taking the lead in this. If not, we need to go back and ask ourselves, what are we valuing more than Jesus Christ? What are we holding on to that's feeding the division rather than destroying it? And the third thing that needs to happen in light of what Christ has done, and remember, y'all, that the reason why we're talking about these things that, that may be hard for us to hear is because Jesus died for this. Jesus died so that we could be one. He, he really did. He really shed blood so that we could be one people. And, and so one thing that needs to change in the church, wherever this is the case, is there needs to be no more looking down on one another. There needs to be no more looking down on one another in the church. Humility needs to triumph over pride. In the church, men should respect women. Adults should appropriately show love and care to children. Those without special needs should include those who do as valuable members of the church. Elders should not lord it over the congregation as if they're in a separate place than everybody else. Everyone needs to be thinking, how can I not honor myself or clamor for my reputation, but give up what I have to advantage someone else? 
And then how long do we need to do this, I think? How long, how many times do we need to disadvantage ourselves so that other people can have and be included in grace? Well, I think Jesus' answer would be 70 times 7. I mean, you don't get done dying to yourself in the church. We all have to keep on loving one another across these lines. You may be wondering, okay, in the midst of all this, look, I'm just really tired. I don't really know what I can do about this right now. I'm just really, I'm exhausted from like a million things going on in my life right now. I really don't know what to do about being a multicultural church. I just tell you that that's okay. It's okay to be exhausted right now. It's okay to be tired. We all need to believe this is true and value this, but I think at the fundamental end of the day, everybody is asking the same question, and it's, what about me? Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus love me in my own brokenness, in my own cultural heritage? Someone asked me recently, I'm white. Does Jesus love me? And they feel really beaten up by a lot of people right now for being white. I've also heard that question from people who are black and people who are Asian. I'm black. Does, people, does Jesus love me? I'm white. I mean, I'm Asian. Does Jesus love me? The answer to that question is Jesus loves you. And I know this. Why? I know because the Bible tells me so. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. Jesus loves you. And as he loves you in your unique situation, he also loves a multicultural people, includes us all together so that we can be one in him. Jesus died for you and he died for all of us to bring us together, to show the world his glory. I pray that in the church that we would be able to repent of what we need to repent of, be able to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can show the world a multi-ethnic unity that actually goes so far beyond the PC, diversity, inclusion stuff that we see. It shows the world the reality of Jesus in such a profound way that people will love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot in that sermon, and I get that. Um, there's a lot in your word, too. And I just pray that you would give us the grace to, to receive and apply what we can. Lord God, I pray against any confusion. I pray that what will be heard so clearly is that Jesus, when you died, you died for each individual person. You also died to redeem and reconcile a people to yourself, and you did that through suffering. You did that so that we might no longer have to live in division, but live in the inclusive community that you have created a multicultural people, a beautiful community that shows forth your glory. God, give us the grace to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.